Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And Novak Djokovic, for the first time since 2013, has fallen on center court at Wimbledon in the final to Carlitos Alcaraz in a five-setter. First time he's lost in five sets since 2006 against Mario Ancic at Wimbledon. It it was an unbelievable match. It felt like at that moment, all eyes were were on tennis and it, it's a it's a rare it's a rare moment and i mean worldwide uh mm-hmm. look this is a show about novak and amy i want to start with you uh but i guess the question is how much did you feel like this was about alcaraz putting in this spectacular generational performance uh versus djokovic being a, a little bit off I think it was the first one you said that Alcaraz is an incredible talent. All you have to do is see him play just a few points and you know what he's made of. The margins in tennis are incredibly thin. I think the total points in this match were only, there was a difference of two points in favor of Carlos. It's just anything can happen, you know, a slip on the grass, a neck cord, a bounce here or there, a decision made to play a drop shot versus rally cross court, just very, very thin. I think there will be a lot of talk about a torch being passed and, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. Don't buy it, Djokovic fans, not for one second. Your guy played an incredible match. He had an incredible tournament. And, you know, let's tee it up for the U.S. Open where Alcaraz will be defending champion. But it's not over, folks. Yeah, I think it was just Alcaraz played a tremendous match. I think, yeah, maybe you're so right about the, I think the margins of what happens in the points. I mean, remember, Novak had a set point in the second set tiebreaker. And he pretty much uh, had a fairly neutral kind of backhand and it, it went to the net. It's like, whoa, when did that happen? And then he missed another. So just like that. And that could have been a two sets to love lead. But then, you know, it's the it's the interactive aspect of tennis. That's what makes the sport so exciting. We have not seen a young player do this since 2009. When is the last time a young player comes into a major final and beats one of our three when, you know, especially when there there's no health questions or, or interesting things happen, right? We've seen young players win majors, but usually what that has meant is that something has happened, right? Like 2020 US Open, something has happened, right? Djokovic gets DQ'd or, or there's an injury or not all of them are there, but, but this is, Djokovic center court Wimbledon he's won four in a row he's he's looking great he's won the first two majors of the year not since 2009 when Del Potro beat Federer in the U.S. Open final have we seen anything like this Joel do you do you feel like that's the proper uh, context I'm also thinking back to the 2021 U.S. Open final 
when Medvedev beat Novak. So that's one, too. And I think yep. the 09 Del Potro over Federer. Yeah, but mostly it's been right. Look, we've had three guys who've been dominating and moments, but then you have one like a, a 2014 uh, Nishikori and Chilich U.S. Open final. That's right. So, yeah, but it's kind of an interesting – it's it's a signal – it's an interesting signal. I, I don't think it's a, a torch passing. It's kind of a rivalry commencing. It's like we have a full-fledged cross-generational rivalry now. And now we have, based on how the tennis calendar, tennis calendar goes, we had five weeks till the U.S. Open. I don't think it's a torch passing either, but let's kind of talk about this. I guess we won't know until we look back on it historically, right? So, like, what what would need to happen for it to be a torch passing because sometimes we do see matches that that are rightfully considered that that's a um, great you novak would have to retire because i won't buy that it's a, a torch passing until he's he's hit his last stroke as a professional tennis player in my opinion i think if that if if alcaraz beats him in the u.s open final if alcaraz beats him at the u.s open that's kind of an interesting kind of bracketed summer that could and then and then they'll each have won two majors this year and the case could be made fairly arduously. That, but then uh, if Novak comes back and wins Australia, does the torse pass back? Or <laughs> Well, you know, next year, no, next year's an Olympic year, so the torch goes running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Running there you go. It's just moving through the world. Yeah, so I guess, you know, that's, but I think what's exciting about this is that we now have a, a cross- generational thing and Novak said earlier the tournament that 36 is a new 26 and Alcaraz is 20 even 26 and 20 is a generational rivalry much less 36 and 20 and what's refreshing to see is often torch torch passings when they've happened are the age is vivid and it's kind of clear that it's happened this was a five-set Wimbledon final recall that Djokovic beat him Roland Garros so we're going to see yeah. Well, and in my mind, in my mind, if I could just tag on to that, um, you know, I said a couple of podcasts ago that the only thing standing in Djokovic's way would be Alcaraz. And and I said a couple of days ago that he's still standing in his way. I don't really think this is about who's the king right now. I think if you're any of the other guys playing professional tennis, you've got to be like, wow, these two are way the freak up there. And we are so far behind right now that we've got to do something because right now it's about these two guys. Now, remember, Nadal has not retired yet. So there's always that as well. Well, yeah, it's a great point. You know, there's a, there was a prophecy in men's tennis that, that I know I pushed back on, but there was a prophecy that post big three era, there's going to be slams for everybody. We're going to have, we're going to get a, you get a slam, you get a slam, you get a slam like, like Oprah. And uh, it just, <laughs> it doesn't look like that's happening anymore. So uh, well, on, go ahead, so Joel. I think there's a win free solution. That's a bad pun. Um, so <laughs> I think, uh, I, think uh, I, got it. I don't know. We'll see, you know, we don't know. I mean, I think, I think uh, the great point is you're right that three, if you're number three, if you're Medvedev and Rude, thank God, maybe am I closer to 13 than I'm to two? But so they're motivated too. And that's what's exciting to see. I mean, it's a, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, there's no question that the Alcaraz and Djokovic are the U.S. Open final. I mean, there are signs of things about skill building, about the sinner progression 
about what goes on with Holger Runa. And I'm not a forecaster, but I do agree that, yeah, those guys, and there are like five other guys who've been in the mix, like Medvedev and Tsitsipas. But yeah, they're behind. These two are unquestionably standing above. And so nobody's going to think they're not going to be the two favorites at the U.S. Open. Nothing is going to happen between now and the U.S. Open to displace that belief. I want to get my uh, my two cents in on the torch passing. So I think the match that comes to mind was uh, is Federer Sampras Wimbledon two thousand one, right? And Joel, you were at that match. Did I get the year wrong? Two thousand two. Sorry, two thousand one. Okay. Uh, Sampras after that won what? One more major, the U.S. Open. Yeah, right. Right, but and, that was yeah. Go okay, on. and then and Federer went on. Yes. To start collecting them like like it, like it was lunch money. That, in in hindsight, can be the passing of the guard moment. So I would say, I would say, if Novak wins three more or even two more majors in his career from this point on, then this is not torch passing match. Well, let's get let's reel it back a little bit just to be clear. Federer beat Sampras in a round of sixteen match. And then he lost in the next round to Tim Henman. So it wasn't like Federer beat Sampras in a semi or a final and said, I am now the king. It's kind of like, I am now the next potential something great when Federer earned that win. Lost in the next round. That was 01. Did not reach a slam final till 03. So all of these things require a little different. You know, Alcaraz today at Wimbledon was all is the reigning U.S. Open champion. So... You know, all these things, this is, right. we got, maybe we got to put our torches, maybe we got to douse our torches. Not that, it, not that things aren't shifting, not that this did, because for example, if Novak had won, we'd be saying, okay, the throne remains, right? I re, he remains the man on the throne and Carlos, I beat you in Paris. I beat you in London. Keep waiting. Now it's kind of like, ah, oh, it's one-on-one. It's, it's like when uh, you beat someone the first time, they beat you. Now we have a rivalry. I mean, forget the one they played last year in Madrid. I'm talking just about at majors. Now it's- Gil won't forget that match. <laughs> it's what one the- of Gil's favorite matches. And I called it a cult classic because Madrid. people who are not casual tennis fans, that was an incredible match. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, okay, let's talk about the tennis part of this. Just, I mean, look, we spend so much time talking about Novak Djokovic victories and why his opponents do not have what it takes or did not have what it took to beat him in that particular match. Now we're looking at a Novak Djokovic loss. This hasn't happened all that often in in recent times. Uh, What stood out to you, Joel, about what Alcaraz was actually able to do? Legs, legs and all legs and strength and movement. And that can be everything from the serve to the rallies to the passing shots to probably the real critical thing conclusively, the forward movement. I mean, look at the gap in forward movement skills between Alcaraz and Sinner, as an example, or Alcaraz and Medvedev, or Alcaraz and just about anyone in the world right now. And we're talking about the application of pressure, the concern about what the opponent is going to do to you. So I think it was the whole aspect of excuse me, leg strength and movement. That I think was the difference. To Joel's point on that, I don't normally look at this metric, but 
the IBM had a distance per point and Alcaraz was 65 feet per point and Djokovic was 61 feet per point. So he, his legs held up very well. Yeah, so right, and it's kind of, that's funny, as, as I thought that's the metric was gonna reveal, it's kind of interesting because we tend to think the guy who covers more is having to work harder and the other guy is in control of the points, but in a way, Alcaraz, Alcaraz covering more of it meant he was kind of controlling points too and making points last and then closing them. Yeah. In some he, ways, out Novaking Novak. Not bad. I definitely think that that happened in, in some ways, especially with just how solid Carlitos got. After the first set and uh, even some of the second set where it just didn't seem that hard for Djokovic to force errors, then it started to seem really, really hard. But I think what stood out to me is uh, something that, Joel, I, I think you talked about it at the end of our preview. Just number of ways to win a point. And I'm always looking for uh, repetition because I want to go out and say, like, this is what was happening over and over and over again. And that's what happened in the match. But I think in this match, it's going to be really hard to do that. It's going to be more like on this point, he hit a big serve. On this point, he played amazing defense. On this point, he had a drop shot. On this point, yeah. he served and volleyed. It was just so many different things. Well, sometimes the weapon is knowledge. Like, I'm doing this, deal with it. Like, Rafa's cross-court forehand, Novak's, you know, withering drives. And sometimes the weapon is doubt. And what, what makes Alcaraz so exciting, and it, this puts him in the, I think, in more of the, the Federer fan appreciation category, is like, wow, I don't know. It's every point, I don't know. It's going to do something different. And that's one of the things that people so enjoy about watching tennis. And that's also what's making this rivalry kind of bubbling and exciting. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. I wrote down problem solving because he wrote he he lost the first set 6-1 and then I wrote down strategic unleashing of the forehand. So the first set he was just slapping at some forehands. He was um trying to hit overhit on forehands that really were more defensive balls and or where he was pinned to a corner. So he got much more strategic about when he would unload that forehand. And I thought that was really good. Um, I think he started going for more on his first serve, or at least, yeah, he was going for more, but he was also playing the first serve points more strategically because I tweeted at, um, it was about a, it was midway through the second set that Carlitos first serve points one was at 59%, which is on grass, that's very, very low. It's low anyway. Um, but then I looked for the entire match and he got it up to 70%. So he, the, the last half of the match or three quarters of the match, he really improved his first serve points one. And yet that second set hung on in the balance. What do you guys make of that tiebreaker? You know, not having seen Novak lost sure. in a major since... January. 
that he's I, a human being. You know, he missed some backhands and um, it happens to every single person that's ever picked up a racket. Yeah, I, I definitely, well, it wasn't the missed backhands. Well, okay, the missed backhands were obviously the first thing and uh, it was it was surprising to see that even even though he's human because it's just been so, so rare. I uh, I didn't love the serve and volley on set point either, though. Uh, Runa did the same thing, and I, I think when when your opponent has set point, I kind of want to make them think and make decisions and give them a chance to get nervous. But uh, a serve and volley is just a it's a reflex, it's a reaction. There's no time to get tight or, or nervous at at all, and I think you give Alcaraz a target on the return of serve to be aggressive and it plays into his hands. So uh, I kind of thought it unraveled, but maybe it was, I just missed two backhands in a row. I don't really want to hit a ground stroke here. So I'm coming in. So was that a, a lack of faith in certain kind of, you know, it's like, I, I know what you mean. I mean, certain volley can apply a certain kind of pressure. Hadn't done it the whole match. And <clears throat> now he's doing it down a set point. And it, it wasn't particularly good serve against a guy who likes to kind of, he's un, unafraid to, take a rip and has the set point. Yeah, it was a little, there's something, it, it seemed a little fuzzy, a little yeah. bit of a fuzzy kind of decision instead of like a, a more of a clear decision. Yeah, he just seems, you know, it was just interesting to watch Novak uh, lose a tiebreaker at a, at a major. Alcaraz was also coming in with vigor and it didn't work on on two points in a row to put Djokovic in a position where, where he had a set point. But I mean, maybe this is kind of one of your, uh, one of your your things, Joel, where like the threat of net rushing makes Djokovic at least a little bit more uneasy on those backhands from the back of the court, knowing he needs to make it good. I don't know. Well, this is the new, this is the Carlos, this is the Alcaraz factor. This is what he's bringing new and exciting to the game. And this is what's setting him apart from his peers. You know, the, the skills, the innovation. We've seen this for 18 months with Alcaraz, at least since he's really blossomed. And now he's kind of one Wimbledon's one. Two majors by the time he's 20 years old. Very few people have done that. I want to talk about learning from the semifinal because I, I don't think you get to where Carlitos is as a player unless you are enthusiastic about learning and and you you're extremely fast at it. Uh, and that part is more the natural talent part, but the other part is having an open mind and wanting to get better and, and not being satisfied. And again, being excited about the process. I mean, what a difference between that semi and, and this match, just in terms of what Alcaraz had to accomplish physically. I mean, he went the distance, he went five sets and Joel, what was it close to like five hours? Right. It was definitely close. Yes. Pretty much almost five hours. And, uh, and yet Carlos, the uh, first set, he loses 6-1. So am I right that he, by that, at that stage, lost three straight 6-1 sets to Novak? Yep. <laughs> it's like, wow, what am I, what's, what's going on with me and this guy? But, but once he got his teeth into the second set, regardless of how that outcome was, he was, you're right, he seemed a lot more physically, emotionally, all the stuff we talked about. There was, there was zero chance that cramping was going to happen in this match as that occurred. Joel, what was the the uh, score of that famous Wimbledon 1980 men's final, Borg over McEnroe? What was the score in the first set? It was 6-1 for McEnroe. That's right. right That's right. right. Go ahead. 
Borg won the second seven five, and yeah, there you go. Thought of that too. Interesting. The fool's gold. It's like it's like the whole Taylor Fritz thing about don't win a set six zero. Well, I think I, I having you know played some match play. I think sometimes when I win a first set really easily, somewhere in the recesses of my mind is first of all maybe relax just a tiny bit even though you try not to or or you know let down or whatever but you also have this little seed going when is the other shoe going to drop when is this guy going to come back and and make a match of this so you're only human from from that but i i do think that it's it's a little weird when you when you start a match with a set that that's one sided it's that one sided it is interesting. You're right. I mean, it's like I've talked to enough players and pros at all levels. Yeah, I better win a set 6-3. Not 7-5. Yeah. You don't have to win to be 7-5 at 6-3. And you kind of want, kind of work through it. And right, you wonder, wow, what's going on here? Is he just kind of handing it to me? What's happening? But uh, I know, I know. It's so, that's where tennis is so um, fantastic because it's kind yeah. of like whether it's a Wimbledon final or the park. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've seen a couple of lopsided sets um, in Djokovic-Nadal matches at, at majors recently. Um, it, it is an interesting mental dynamic. But I, I think another thing that, that occurred in, in the third set was there was so much effort at the start of the third. That seemed to be the, the real collision in the match that the mm-hmm. whoever kind of came out of that on top was going to win the set because Djokovic kind of went away after he went down 3-1 in the third, um, or maybe 4-1 in the third, two breaks. Uh, after that, that marathon game was like a 28-minute game. Um, it, 13 deuces. Yeah. Unbelievable. That, that was insane. That yeah, was it was longer insane. than a lot of sets, you see. Do you know what I loved? Alcaraz saying that it was going to be the best day of his life before the match. Right. What does That's that say? That says this guy, this is, that's the process. That's like, that's seeing, and it's interesting. Um, I think a lot about how people define success and winning and success in life. And obviously we talk a lot about success in tennis and we have these vivid outcomes, but that tells you where his headspace was. That, yeah, even I lose, it's the best day of my life. Even if I, even I end up, you know, runner up at Wimbledon, it's the best day of my life. How great. And so he's, a, he's letting himself take it in and enjoy it. He's not putting the pressure on himself to well if i win it's the best day if i lose it's the worst day he and it's like it's kind of that's what makes him so refreshing it's kind of like wow that's the lesson for player development for everyone and and congruent to that i think the other edge of the the sword or whatever um when novak is is giving his concession speech at the end and he looks up and he sees his son who's still smiling and just oh so dad lost you know whatever he's still happy and he knows in that moment that it really doesn't matter what novak djokovic did on that day or if he ever won a Grand Slam at all, or a tennis match, his son loves him. And that doesn't change. And, um, you know, it's the same type of, of um, human, very human mentality. And to add to this, no one, uh, this is what makes Wimbledon such a special part, because at some of the other, at some of the other tournaments, when you win the US Open, 
you feel like you're king of the world, king of the world. But at Wimbledon, nobody is bigger than Wimbledon. And so it's Wimbledon itself that's about, it's like the community, the sports, everything from the presence of royalty, the Royal box, to the ceremony, to, to the shaking hands with the ball boys, to all things like we are gathered here. We are gathered mm -hmm. here. And there's a sense of something that it's all bigger than the sum of its parts. And everybody knows that when they win or lose, that they're kind of eternally humbled by Wimbledon and it's in its spiritual glory. And I'm not, I'm not, um, being ironic with that. I mean, it's really true. And so when you see that when you hang, be around center court and take that in and you're right, Novak with his family and Carlos winning it for the first time and all those other people watching is very, very powerful and like nothing else in all of tennis. Yeah. Great. Well, very, very well put. If you're focused on enjoying that, if you're focused on having fun during the process, it is going to reduce your stress naturally, right? Stress is outcome-based. We, I mean, let's talk about, we can even bring in the other final. Anz Jabur wants to win a major. She wants to win Wimbledon. She did not take the court thinking, I don't think, about enjoying the match. I mean, this is someone who I think has a very clear goal, wants it incredibly badly, and was in a position where she was probably just putting way, way too much pressure on herself. Now, it's a lot easier to not do that when you're 20 and you've already won a major. That's right. That is true. She's, it was her third final. And we talked about this last month with Casper Ruud in his third final. I mean, it, it can exponentially wear upon you to lose finals, just like it exponentially gains on you. Like I always think, Winning one major is one, two is four, three is nine, et cetera. You know, so Novak now, what is that? Like uh, 529, 23 squared. <laughs> so, so all these things <clears throat> add up. And you're right. And Jabur, she knows that. She knew it the minute she shook hands. She knew it while it was happening. And she yet had, and this gets to, I think, so much of uh, things in life are the, the, the language and stories we tell ourselves going into things. So Carlos is it's like you know the sat where they said a good title for this story would be this a good carlos alcaraz a good title for today is this is the best day of my life before it even starts let's talk about the grand slam um this is it's just so hard to do it's just so 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 hard uh and that's why i i i really feel like you can't talk about it until three are in the bag and then it's time to, to really hone in on the fact that it can be a possibility because winning two majors in a row in itself is really, really hard. You're only halfway done after uh, you win the Australian Open of Roland Garros. Uh, but I do think it's a shift for, for Novak's outlook in the future where everything seemed uh, very kind of 2023 oriented. And I just think from a motivational standpoint, uh, if he won the calendar slam, I feel like you have the Olympics in 2024. There would have been real questions about now what and what's next. Novak throughout his career has been motivated by beating two other greats alongside him, chasing those greats. And it's, it's a different dynamic here with Alcaraz being young, uh, but it's somebody to focus on beating. 
And I, I think that for any tennis player at the top, having that rival is, is very healthy. So I think that's the silver lining for Djokovic, Amy, is that it's going to, the opportunity to beat Alcaraz in New York and moving forward should be something that genuinely excites Novak Djokovic right now. Yeah, that's a great point because it's hard to get a motivation when you've accomplished all that he has and he is, you know, on the back end of his career. So he's got to find it from somewhere and perhaps a new rivalry um, is is the perfect place to to get the motivation because I guarantee you he doesn't want things to end like this. Um, at the same time, I think we do have to acknowledge um, a bit of grieving that the calendar slam is not going to happen this year and it may never happen for Novak. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's okay to talk about it when a guy's won the first two, but maybe not, you know, with the same hype or whatever. Um, I do think that, um, Novak will come to New York uh, refreshed and um, reinvigorated and, and energized to give this a go. Well, I want to I want to explore both this thing about the slam and motivation. Um, yeah, absolutely. And of course, I was already pondering the three slam and I've been doing I had my research about the the other people who've won the first three and gone on to win the four. But there are others who, including Novak, who won the first three and didn't. Lou Hode was another one who won the first three and he didn't win the US. And, um, but I think motivation, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use another example about motivation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at someone like, okay, Andy Murray playing challengers, you know, playing challengers, lower down the rankings, he's won three majors. And someone said, God, what's he doing that for? And I'm gonna use that to answer the same thing about, um, about uh, um, whatchamacallit, about Novak and his motivation. I think you're motivated to keep winning tennis matches, like winning tennis matches. I don't think having won 23 slams diminishes motivation. I think these guys, I mean, I think they know they've seen the examples of people who leave the game because of injuries and their body and, you know, whether it's Roger or Rafa. And I think Novak, as long as he's healthy, I like playing and winning tennis matches. I like, put, he likes putting in the preparation. He likes doing that. So yeah, granted though, there's a little more of an emotional visceral quality now that this guy took his Wimbledon, that adds to it. But I think motivation mostly comes from ourself and desire to keep playing and winning and competing in tennis matches. It's not, I mean, it's like, it's like when I hear that, what do you still motivate? You have nothing more to prove. What do you have to prove anyway? To whom? I, I think it is, it's a fair counter. It's a good point. I don't think everybody is wired like Andy Murray or Venus Williams for that matter. Uh, I think that it it differs, yeah. And it it seems to me like Novak is a pretty goal oriented person in terms of visualizing what he wants to achieve and using that to wake up at six in the morning to do the one hour of stretching and to do the uh, the two and a half hours extra of of research on the latest technology that is going to help the the hip flexibility. You know what I mean? Like I I just think. I mean, it's a grind, right? The, the life is a grind. And I think it helps to have things in front of you, which Novak has always had and certainly had, you know, leading up to this match with the Grand Slam still alive and, and Federer's um, 
Wimbledon titles record still alive. But as these things diminish, I think for Novak, it would have been a, a serious question. What, what would have been a serious question? Like, is the motivation going to be a challenge for him? Is it going to drop off if there's just not as much to chase? There's always, but see, but no, I, I get that, but I'm going to kind of quibble a little bit. I'm going to say there's always things to chase. So he wins Wimbledon, obviously, there's the calendar slam. But now he hasn't won Wimbledon. And so there's, there's Carlos has also, remember, he hasn't won the U.S. Open in five years. And there's slam 24, and there's slam 25, and there's winning matches. And, and the question becomes, the question becomes less one, I think, about the pursuit of outcomes and also the engagement with the process. And the thing I learned, like I, I remember talking to Pete Sampras after he, he didn't plan his retirement in 02. He, he announced it months after winning the 02 U.S. Open, and that was his final match. And he had the, the, the Hollywood kind of ending that people dream of, but is mostly impossible in anything in life. And Sampras said, I knew I could play at Wimbledon, but I knew I didn't have it in me to put in the time to prepare for it, to do it the justice it needed. You know, the practicing, the training, the playing other tournaments. And I think that's that's where the motivation, it's not, it's the attainment of outcomes. And, so, and Novak, so that's going to be for a person like Novak, like is my, the body tells you mostly, the body in the marketplace. And, and people, we talk about Murray and Venus. Yes, yeah, some people feel that way when they get to be 27 in the world. I had enough. What if Borg had 15 majors? I'm, oh, 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 when Sampras was, oh, when Sampras was having a passport. That's right. That might've, that might've motivated him. That's right. But that, but also his body, I mean, you just have to see where the Sampras yeah. body and mind was by that stage, by that stage. He might've set his whole bar in different ways if, if 15 had been the chase number instead of the number having been 12. Okay. Um, continuing on Novak, continuing on, on the future, what do you think Djokovic learned from this match? What can he take from how he lost it and what Alcaraz did? If we can just kind of do that, that instant evaluation of, of what Novak would need to do better next time to, uh, to win in, in this spot against this version of, of Carlos Alcaraz. Wow. Well, I know, I know I've been harping on this a lot and it, it, despite the fact that this match had a, a really long um, average rally length, um, I don't know what the final analysis was, but I saw at some point in the middle of the match, it was 5.1 was the average rally length, which is sky high on grass. And it just tells you like the guys were playing a lot of long points. Um, I think that Novak has to really think hard about his service games because particularly second serve, um, how do I approach this and how do I approach it against um, different players? Because um, one stat that really stood out to me, I mean, so much was even like the total points, the net points were very even um, first uh first serve points one I think was pretty even but one thing that really stood out to me was the receiving points um they were almost dead even the percentage of receiving points one however 
um, Carlos played 184 receiving points to Novak's 150. So that tells me that Carlos was really extending and getting into those Novak service games. So at at his age, 36, and knowing that the vast majority of points in tennis are, are pretty short, um, I think he has to be way more strategic about how he serves so that he doesn't get into these long, drawn-out service games. I wonder, yeah, of course, that uh, that 13-deuce game. Yeah. Things, but also, and also then, and, and Alcaraz is whipping through his service games, too. Is that the yeah. point? So, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, that's interesting. That's going to be some interesting kind of a Novak. And see, as long as Novak is engaged in that kind of process, that's plenty, some interesting, you know, things to the motivation front. I think that's some really interesting analytics and we need to see how Novak goes about that or what he thinks he needs to bring to it to kind of like, how do you, not just how you beat this guy, but how you make your own game better too. I think it's a continuation of the weapon building that he's already done. I look at the fifth mm -hmm. set, the forehands were there, a couple here and there, he puts away, or maybe he hits good net approaches and finishes at net. I, I feel like on the fine margins, if, if Djokovic was a little bit more confident in, okay, I'm going to be a really, really aggressive player here, and I, I think he has what it takes to do it, but he still kind of has some gut instincts to be a little bit more consistent and a little bit more passive. Uh, I think that could have made the difference. So I, I think against Alcaraz uh, specifically, he's going to need to be a little bit more assertive and forceful. I agree. I agree. That's right. He's going to have to look for ways to make points go faster. Yeah. Well, it is um, what a pleasure it was. Brilliant five-setter. Uh, tremendous storylines and uh, a really, really high level of play, a show for, uh, for tennis fans around the world and uh, another chapter in uh, this generational rivalry. We won't have that long uh, potentially to watch it in the grand scheme of things, but we will soak it up as much as we can while we have it. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Appreciate if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.